Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin. And I'm Aaron. And we're back this week to talk about season four, episode two. What's the title of this episode? 402 Payment Required. And they're all named after error messages this season? Yes, it seems like this season they've switched from having um, file names for each season episode, maybe because they ran out of ones that they could use for each title. But um, this season they have switched to using um, the 400 series of HTTP error codes, which kind of reflects errors that the client is responsible for, as opposed to things like um, 500 internal server error, which is something that the server is responsible for. So I really like um, the names of some of them that are coming up, like uh, Conflicts and uh, Gone. I think that those are probably going to be some of more uh, dramatic episodes. I've never gotten a conflict error, but now I'm going to pay attention and look for that. I just wish they were going up to um, 18 episodes because then we would have HTTP, I'm a teapot. What? It's a long story. <laughs> That's what we'll call our first bonus episode. Oh, and speaking of which, we used... Um, 404 Kevin not fans to refer to our Home Alone bonus episode. So I think that we had kind of uh, predicted they would use them eventually. Look, a successful prediction. Hey. <laughs> For once. I guess that's why they're always good to celebrate. Um, I was trying to think at the beginning of this episode, there's some like novel or play or something where someone talks about being present like with Nero while Rome burned and, you know, with the Huns and basically at every terrible moment with every terrible dictator in history. And I can't place the reference in my head, but wow, what a Zhang montage at the beginning. They really cram in a lot of exposition here to make up for how mysterious uh, Zhang and White Rose was in the past, because before we didn't really know anything. And in kind of an almost um, ham-fisted way, they tell you a lot about their backstory in this case. Including maybe that they did 9-11. That wasn't really clear to me. Um, but it makes a bit more sense when you see that this is actually coming from Price's perspective. And it's because he's telling um, Elliot these things that he's known the entire time, but haven't been revealed to the audience yet. Um, in some previous seasons, we've seen um, lines coming from Obama and other uh, really big political figures. And I think that I remember being fooled by one of those and thinking that he was actually being a guest star on the show. <laughs> Apparently those are all just uh, post-production. But in this montage, um, they actually insert B.D. Wong into 3D scenes that include world leaders like Obama and like other people. Um, I actually heard some speculation that these might be using... Um, deep fake technology, which is when you kind of use a machine learning algorithm to take a look at a picture or a video and turn, um, for example, somebody's face into somebody else's face in a way that's very realistic and convincing. I think that that would be cool, but I don't think that it was the case because um, to do that, you need to have a really big selection of pictures, both of the person you're taking the face from and the person that you're putting it onto. Um, and there wouldn't really be enough of those just to switch any random person out with somebody else. I do love the baby Zhang photo, though, in it. <laughs> um, I guess if only they knew what they would grow up to be. So in this, uh, it is a bit expository, uh, I admit, where I don't know if they felt like they had to have a big shocker off the top of the episode because of the way the first episode is structured, but we get a lot of stuff coming at us really fast, and one of those things is that Minister Zhang had formed a group called the Deus Group. So Deus is Latin for God, and maybe that ties to some of the um, kind of 
what seemed ludicrous Tyrell speak at the time about, you know, we were meant to be gods together. Um, he's formed this deus group essentially to consolidate power and become war profiteers. Which I guess is kind of what we had expected writers to be up to, but not to this extent, since um, we didn't expect to know this explicitly. Um, the name deus, I thought that was actually kind of funny because it made me think of another literary trope. Um, we often talk about this. In this case, um, deus ex machina, which is when there's like a new character that um, comes out in the third act to save or change the story in some way. Um, and in this case, that actually is a group that's been named deus. We'll get to the actual deus ex machina later in the episode. So we learn that White Rose uh, has graduated from industrial espionage uh, and then using the United States as a sort of Petri dish, um, moved onto a project where they wanted to consolidate information, which they did um, voluntarily through the Internet. Uh, it was great that they used Let's um, infamous line by Al Gore saying that he created the Internet. Although he was just trying to say that he contributed to creating the Internet. That was like one of the most... Um, funny early internet memes i like how price is like price disheveled which essentially means he has one button unbutton and perhaps he hasn't had his hair cut for 11 days instead of 10 days i would still say that he's holding himself pretty well together considering that his daughter just died in front of him though like i would really expect this to be bothering him much more than it actually is it's true although i guess we see through his actions that he's not acting like the price we have known He's explaining all of this to Elliot, and apparently it was his job. If anyone broke into the uh, John Garson apartment, he was supposed he was supposed to interfere with the intruder and also to report them. So he's chosen not to report Elliot, and instead is at all safe with him sharing all this information. Yeah, I get the impression that in this season he's going to be working a lot more closely with Elliot to sort of take revenge for Angela. And I think because he's accepted, he refers to himself as a dead man walking. He's now a man with really very, very little to lose. And that makes him dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you were saying this was kind of behavior that we hadn't seen from him before, but it was something that he kind of um, shined a light on just in one particular scene, which is when they were out walking in the rain with their umbrellas in, I think, season two, where Price was saying that... Um, he was a mercenary and that he would reign chaos on White Rose. And I hope that that was a bit of foreshadowing and we're going to see some really extreme uh, behavior from him this season. We notice in this scene that Mr. Robot is still the one who is speaking to us, the audience. And in his conversation with us, he talks about how their safety um, would have a price. Elliot is getting a call uh, on his phone from Darlene, which he is ignoring for the time being. Yeah, and I guess he's going to have a reason to ignore those calls in a minute. <laughs> Or maybe to accept them. I mean, it's uh, we'll talk about the content of the calls in a second, but uh, he doesn't seem too perturbed by it. Um, Mr. Robot is pressing Price for a contact who can help them with the Cypress National Bank attack. And it turns out that Susan Jacobs was, in fact, Price's contact there. Yeah, it always seemed like Susan Jacobs had been a bit of a dangling thread, like a plot that hadn't been completely resolved. And I guess this is how they're reintegrating that story. It was really interesting to see how it was um, just sequestered to one group of characters and that they did do a really good job of keeping those storylines completely separate from um, Elliot and Mr. Robot. I admit the reintroduction of Susan Jacobs made me think a little bit harder about the woman in the refrigerator theory where I thought, oh, did she die? And did Angela also die so that Philip Price could have this moment in season four? 
Yeah, I think that with um, Susan Jacobs, she wasn't very um, well-developed either, which is one of those contributing factors for that trope as well. Um, she had moved the story along, but I think a key difference is that there wasn't um, like a, a, a man or somebody else who was directly benefiting from her behavior. I started to think about this in a bit of a different way, though, especially with regards to um, Angela's death in the last episode. Um, sorry for the spoiler if you've, if you're watching this one first for some reason, but um, I thought that I had kind of ruled out the possibility of fridging for her because her character was so well developed. But I think that um, when you consider the fact that maybe like the benefactor of her fridging would not be Elliot, but might actually be um, Price, who's now um, had a new divergent storyline because of her death, I think that maybe you actually could see it that way. And when I kind of take that more broader approach about the fact that it could be used to propel any character forward, I could also see that for um, Susan Jacobs as well. Now, Susan Jacobs has disappeared. And I think this is the first time it occurred to me that Elliot didn't know about that. Yeah, exactly. And I kind of thought that he would have done by now. And we'll circle back to that as well. What Elliot wants from Price is for him to convene the dais group. So get all of these people in the same room and he wants it within the next eight days which sounds like an almost impossible task and price is pretty hesitant to do that but i think that he ultimately gets an idea what's interesting about this scene and i can't tell if it's just uh, a quirk in acting is that price seems to be speaking to elliot during this whole conversation but on his way out of the room he leans into mr robot and speaks to him yeah, you know, I didn't notice that, but I saw some other people discussing it online. And I think that that's something that is kind of, um, like, glaring explicit enough that most people probably would notice it and think that it was something that was um, uh, actually part of the plot of the story. So I, I could imagine that going somewhere, but it also could just be like, um, like I was saying in the last episode, that sometimes they have uh, Elliot and Mr. Robot in different rooms doing things at the same time. And it's because um, we're all seeing this through Elliot's eyes, and he's inherently the same unreliable narrator that created Mr. Robot. So it kind of allows the writers the opportunity just to twist the world in any way that actually makes sense for Elliot, because ultimately it's his perspective. Now, Darlene is calling with a pretty urgent message, and she's calling to tell Elliot that their mother has passed away. Which sounds so sad, but they don't actually seem very sad. I think it's probably really complicated when your abusive parent dies. Yeah. And I think we see that when they go to the retirement home and the staff person there is gushing about how kind and warm and generous their mom has been and how they just don't know her to be that person at all. Yeah, I guess it also kind of relates to how in this show... Um, Different characters kind of have different personalities depending on which context they're in. And so the prime example of that, obviously, is um, Minister Zhang and White Rose. But they kind of play with that idea of having multiple identities, multiple personalities quite a bit. And maybe it's the case that like the mother was a completely objectionable person from the perspective of her child because she was a bad parent or a bad mother. But uh, that might not be so obvious to her caretaker, who had a, a different view of her. They want to donate all of her items. They're not interested in keeping any of them, uh, except for a really fabulous coat that Darlene puts on. Um, and they're told they have to pack it all up themselves. Yeah, it seems like um, even beyond not wanting to keep any of it, they don't even want to look at it. Like, they don't even consider that option. 
They do find Elliot's old yellow Walkman, I guess from the 90s, in one of her drawers. And they're surprised to find that she has it because apparently she hated music. Yeah, but I guess um, we'll find out that she wasn't actually listening to music on it. Although there's you raised some questions about how she got the Walkman and things like that. I also have a question about that. Uh, I also thought you would be proud of me as I'm watching this. What I noticed is that in this scene and in the all safe scene that we just saw, Elliot is always shown in very yellow sunlight, which doesn't seem like the way he's usually depicted. I thought about that in the um, all safe scenes where whenever they go there now, it's also dilapidated and kind of use the orange lighting to reflect that. Um, I kind of wonder what the specific symbolism is of the orange lighting, though. I wonder that, too, because that tends to be not is natural lighting or is natural light white maybe i got this backwards natural light's more yellow natural light's more yellow okay so yeah i was like maybe it's something about the sun and i you know i'll just cut that off right there let's go to the next actually do you have anything else to say about the retirement home scene i don't the next scene um I'm so glad to see uh, more of Dom in this season, and she is being interviewed by an agent at the FBI. I really like this scene. I especially thought it was cool how um, in this uh, in this particular scene, and like I think all the other ones that have um, interviews in the FBI office, they have Dom um, placed like in the center of the screen, symmetrically opposed by the person who's questioning her. So there aren't those, um, those kind of shots where their character is just off in one side of the screen or where you only see the side of their head and they're looking off somewhere else. Um, it really is more of um, like a, a focused shot that draws visual comparisons between the two characters. I also think that that's something else that they picked up from um, Homecoming, in part because they had those more limiting um, one-to-one aspect ratio scenes. I think the way they're showing it, too, is it's very positional. That's the way that you sit when you are negotiating against someone or arguing against someone. So I think it also shows her kind of removal from the fold. Yeah. And I guess there's not really a lot of trust that's going on between these two people right now. I got the impression that Dom is kind of trying to reach out in some way, but she just doesn't really have the option to. I love that I think for most of this scene that Dom is just going to spill everything. Me too. And I still kind of think that that's what her plan was and that she had second thoughts about it. It almost made me think of um, Elliot's with the folders in that very early Terry Colby scene, which actually I think was from the pilot, where um, like they go in there with one plan, but then they change their minds at some point. So she tells the FBI officially that she thinks Santiago was collaborating with the Trujillo drug cartel. Yeah. So that's just a bit of a red herring to keep them off the dark army for now. They do cut away to La Mort Heureuse, and my French accent is not very good, um, which is the taxidermy shop where Janice works. Very nice decorations in there. No, it looks like uh, some kind of creepy grandma's attic in there. Uh, I did catch something about the name of that shop, though. Um, So La Mort Heureuse was actually the title of a novel, The Happy Death, by Albert Camus. Um, And it was published after his death in the 70s sometime. That story, there's actually a gun suicide in the street at the beginning of that novel. Oh, kind of like the beginning of the season. Exactly. And then there's kind of this uh, fixation in this and a lot of existentialist novels about how your happiness is your choice. uh, Because the existentialists didn't really care about structural forces that impact our lives. And some of the things that are interesting in this book and why I think uh, Esmail may have read it 
is that there are quotes in it like, um, you know, there are two things that are important in life, uh, happiness and money. And the reason money is important is because to have money is to have time and you can buy time. And if you think about it, if you don't have to work three jobs, you have significantly more time. Um, and also one of the lines I thought was really maybe related was that to have time is the most dangerous and the most magnificent of all experiments. Wow, that definitely um, rings a bell when it comes to White Rose. Exactly. So White Rose's early uh, early literary works. Um, <laughs> you can uh, check this one out probably from your public library. I wasn't as familiar with that or um, with the... I think play that was referenced in the last episode, um, No Exit. Uh, would you also describe that one as existentialist? Is that kind of like a recurrent theme through this season? I would. And I think um, we're about 10 years apart in age and the existentialists were really cool when I was a teenager and we didn't have the internet yet. So I remember reading all these things when I was quite young. <laughs> For my generation, it was Banksy's um, existentialism book. Oh, nice, nice. Janice is listening to some weird, I don't know if it's a podcast, but it's some kind of newscast or, or story um, that basically defends Charles Manson and the Manson family and says that they're merciful compared to state justice. I'm almost certain that this is or is a parody of um, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History or one of his other podcasts. I might uh, be wrong about this specific person that it is, though. I would love that. Also, that's a great podcast. We should all check that out. So we see that Dom's now the ASAC, the assistant special agent in charge. So she's assumed Santiago's rank. And I guess that just shows you um, what you have to go through to climb to that level in the public service. <laughs> Especially these days. Janice is checking on how the interview with Agent Horton went. And Dom says that she's 99.9% .9 sure that message delivered, message received, everything's fine. I think this is why you always need to be careful of your like imposter syndrome and self-criticism because she probably could have just said 100% right there. Yeah, this is a caution against doubting yourself. Yeah, yeah. She got that in the back. What's funny is the least plausible scene in this whole episode to me is when the woman whips her dead dog out of her bag and says, I want Beatrice with me forever. <laughs> that did seem to come from nowhere. Oh, I just think if you're the kind of person who wants your dog taxidermied to be with you forever, you've probably boxed them up nicely in a blanket and things. You don't kind of unceremoniously whip them out of your purse. It's so creepy. <laughs> the expression that Janice has when she sees it, though, really makes it. I think that it uh, just goes to show you how creepy she is. She's so sinister. She's doing an excellent job in this villain role. Uh, is it Ashley Atkinson is the actor? Yeah, well, you were the one who said that last time, so I hope you were right about it. <laughs> I hope I was correct last time also. Yeah, she's doing just great. So cut from the taxidermy shop to, I I think this is a funeral parlor. Yeah, wow, that sounds like a very unpleasant sentence. Um, I think that uh, this is a, a continuation of the scene that Elliot had with Darlene. Right now, he's just speaking with Mr. Robot, though. Mr. Robot um, says something I thought was impactful about there's a price for living and a price for dying because they're just dealing with all the bureaucracy and expenses associated with uh, putting Elliot's mom to rest. Yeah, that is that is pretty existentialist in and of itself, I guess. I do notice, I find Mr. Robot very restrained and very moderate this season. Like, he seems almost cautious to me. Yeah, I noticed that too. And especially in contrast to Elliot, who now sometimes seems to be more reckless. And it seems to be like more and more often Mr. Robot has to keep him under control. 
Can we talk now about possibly my favorite scene in this episode in the Bowery subway station? <laughs> oh, yes. I, I like that one a lot, too. I think I thought the snowman was something they had taken from their mom's house. I think I thought it was like a decoration. <laughs> like uh, something they wanted at the carnival or something? Yeah, like Kevin McAllister or something. I, I like how in this scene they managed to um, intertwine the background's comedic elements with plot developments because you can see Susan Jacobs on Elliot's phone and there's kind of a moment of suspense where you wonder if... Um, Darlene sees it and starts to wonder why Elliot would be looking for Susan Jacobs. But um, they kind of cut through all of that tension with the really funny moments at the end. It is really funny, especially after this sort of sad moment where Darlene is really asking for Elliot to support her in going to find out what was in their mom's old safe deposit box at the bank that they were not aware of. So she's really looking to him for support and, you know, he's kind of resistant and it's all very sad. And then this snowman just pops up and says, condolences and boards away. <laughs> In such a plain way, too. Um, I think that the snowman is actually Elliot's third altar. Oh, maybe that's it. <laughs> um, but what do you think is in their safe deposit box? Well, so I love when Darlene's like, adoption papers? your adoption <laughs> like i mean i i don't know what i thought would be in there i didn't think there would be money in there i didn't think there would be anything sentimental in there i thought isn't isn't money in a safe deposit box just a bank account but i guess it's undeclared <laughs> and untracked fair enough sorry i shouldn't have cut you off no no um i mean i i guess the the hope you have at this point in the episode is that maybe there's some information in there she just didn't strike me as the type who would be sentimental to have you know jewelry or photographs or anything like that in there did you think there would be something special in there no, it was just really curious to me. And I also know that they spent a lot of time discussing it in this episode. So I got the impression that it's something that must be really important. Now we cut back to Dom, who is interrogating an Irish mobster who's in the business of relocating career criminals. And it's kind of cool to see Dom here in her regular work that isn't so controlled by the Dark Army. Of course, she's very distracted. And then she gets a text from Janice with possibly the finest use of an emoji of all time. <laughs> I knew that that was like a meme in the making when I first saw that. Dom is also called by a colleague who says that she needs to see something that's on the news. And so no name has been released, but the agent who had interrogated her the previous day, uh, Agent Horton, um, has died by suicide. Right. And they definitely um, they kind of put quotes on the word suicide there because it's implied that the Dark Army is responsible. I mean, what isn't the Dark Army responsible for? It seems like, um, especially in this season, like they're really everywhere. I hope at some point we'll get a sense of how big and how pervasive Dark Army is, because they do really seem to be ubiquitous. I think that now we're back to the bank, and they're finding out that the safe deposit box was actually disposed of almost two years ago. And I guess that kind of ends, I don't know if it ends Darlene's hopes or if it just ends her distraction, because then they circle back to talking about how the two of them are coping with Angela's death. <laughs> yeah, I think that it definitely is um, really upsetting for Darlene, because not knowing what it is, but knowing that it was kind of important enough to be kept in a safe deposit box, 
um, almost the fact that you want to find out what it was is a motivating factor, but it also is just so upsetting to have the um, possibility actually like quenched for her and know that no matter what, she's probably not going to find out what it is. Although I'm still hoping that she will at one point. Um, they do switch to talking about Angela now, and it seems um, almost a little funny to me that they're grieving the loss of their mother, but the only thing they're willing to talk about is Angela and Angela's mother instead. Well, and truthfully, I don't know how much... I mean, it is a kind of grief, but I think also their mother's death brings a significant relief for the two of them, and so maybe it kind of frees them up to think about their other feelings and losses. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that having those two things happen so close to each other kind of just magnifies the grief that each of them are experiencing. This is truly the worst Christmas that anyone has ever had, though. I'm not kidding. They open up the Walkman and there's a tape in it uh, labeled Happy Mother's Day in a child's handwriting. And Darlene wants Elliot to listen to it with her. How are they both going to listen to it on that one pair of headphones? Well, and they're old school, right? They're not earbuds. <laughs> I guess they figure it out later. They do figure it out. Now, this opened up a lot of questions for me because they're doing sort of a fake newscast as children. It's Elliot, Darlene, and Angela, and they're doing like a special broadcast uh, about Happy Mother's Day, Mrs. Moss. So it being on the day of their mother's death, I thought that that's probably what this would have been about. And it kind of caught me by surprise that it was actually about Angela's mother instead. Well, it makes me wonder a lot about it because it didn't necessarily seem to me that the two families were that close, even though the kids were really close friends. So I guess I wonder, you know, why did Darlene and Elliot think of her as a mom? You know, why were they close enough to her to care about wishing her a happy Mother's Day when they would never have made such a thing for their own mom? Yeah, well, I guess it goes to show you that um, Elliot, Darlene, and Angela have been very close ever since their childhoods. What it made me think about also was how um, their mother must have been so desperate for that connection with their children, um, even though she had presumably been pretty abusive for them, that um, she would listen to this even if it wasn't uh, for her or for somebody else. I think that's the saddest part and the part where you realize that um, even people who do harm can also be hurt because she's obviously lonely and maybe regretful about the way she conducted herself with her own children. Um, and Elliot also talks about, you know, she was probably just very lonely. So you do have this moment of empathy for her. And I don't know if we're going to continue to kind of see the Magda character through the show, but it maybe makes her a bit more complex than she had been before. I, I guess we can talk about her character and how they show up toward the end of this episode. But for now, we're getting to a scene that has... Um, Price and uh, Minister Zhang next to a gigantic Christmas tree. What a Christmas tree. It's beautiful, but a little imbalanced. <laughs> yes, a little to the left. Now, Price has reached out. He's requested this conversation with White Rose, and that's to... Inf Sorry, who's presenting is Zhang in this scene, I should be clear. Um, Price wants to resign as CEO of eCorp, and I have a theory about his replacement. Uh, and by default, that also means he will be leaving the Deus group. Right. And I think that we kind of see that the ulterior motive here is that this will force um, force Minister Zhang to have a meeting with all the other Deus group executives, which is what Elliot had asked him for before. 
So I think that from Price's perspective, he sees this as a way to accomplish those ends. But I'm also really concerned about what it means for the future of his character, because we can consider um, what White Rose had done to the previous CEO of E Corp, and then what he went on to do to his grave in season one. So um, once Price leaves this, I think that he realizes, um, and he sort of said this earlier when he was uh, he was saying that he was a dead man walking, which is probably true for him once he's out of the group. I have a note that says Price is business disheveled. (laughs) I get it. He wants to resign by the end of the year. So they're looking for this meeting to be called within eight days. Zhang is definitely not into it. And the project has not yet shipped. So very concerned that that's going to be jeopardized by Price's actions. Which is uh, part of the point from Price's perspective, I guess. It was sort of surprising to me to see that um, Zheng had allowed this vulnerability to continue because they actually are really upset by it. It really does interfere with their plans. And um, I would have expected them to have more foresight about this possibility and how it would interfere with their project that they've been working on for decades at this point. So we learned the Deus Group must agree in person and by consensus on his replacement. And I wanted to ask you if you think that's going to be Terrell. <laughs> oh, Wow. I guess that he is in a pretty good position to be there, actually, because he's already sort of under the um, Dark Army's thumb, and he's already the CTO. So that actually would be a really good candidate. Although I think that we both know that it takes forever for things to be decided by consensus. Yeah, like if they think they're going to reach that within eight days, good luck to you. <laughs> but yeah, so that is my, I think it's going to be Terrell, although, again, never had a correct prediction, so we'll see. <laughs> Uh, I do grieve this tree. It was such a beautiful tree. And I think that I don't like seeing um, Zhang be this angry. Like, it's maybe the first time that he's really lost his cool and actually been destructive like this. And so I suppose that that shows us that Zhang can be pushed past their limits and act out. On second thought, I actually remember them throwing their wine glasses around in season two or something like that. See what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. They're going to see this White Rose and Grant or something? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They hurled their tumbler across the room. Okay. Yeah. They're really tyrelling it. <laughs> They're really tyrelling it. They had chugged a bottle of vodka prior to that moment. <laughs> uh, let's go back to Elliot at the funeral home. Price is called to update him on the meeting and tell him that he's made his move. And Elliot offers a thank you. And Price is pretty clear that he doesn't want the thank you. He's doing this for his own reasons. The other thing I don't buy in this episode is that Darlene could possibly have their mother's ashes that same day. Is this the same day? (laughs) I I guess so. Unless he's been at that church for uh, a day and a half or something. Um, It seems like Darlene just like put them in like a tin barrel or something did we talk about how elliot had asked for the cheapest urn and casket and such i was just coming to that and so it kind of looks like a tin barrel because it probably is now she confronts elliot at this moment because she she's a confronter she doesn't want to just wait for him to surprise her she had noticed him looking up susan jacobs in the subway station (laughs) and um it hasn't been revealed to elliot yet what exactly happened to susan and what role darlene played in it She admits to him that he's been hacking Susan Jacobs' equine wallet, and the final transaction in it was a transaction at an animal shelter. And so this is how we learned that the last transaction in her equine wallet was Darlene, and also that Susan Jacobs paid for her own cremation. (laughs) I guess you all do in some way. (laughs) Um, 
I think that uh, it, it's interesting how they talk about having the ecoin wallet be traceable because it kind of reminds me of Bitcoin, which is um, actually a public ledger where everybody can look up all the transactions going from somebody to somebody else. You just don't know what that person's name is. So um, the fact that they ended up paying with ecoin instead of cash and that ended up um, identifying them kind of made me think of that too. One thing I thought was surprising to me, and this is just about how I had framed things, was that I saw an interview with Carly Chaikin shortly before the season came out where she talks about how Darlene is the head of F Society. And so I think sometimes I think about Elliot as the head of it maybe when he in fact is kind of separate. She talks in this scene about how every hack he's ever pulled off has been with F Society's help. I think that's true for a lot of cases, but um, not necessarily all of them. I mean, he's had very successful hacks on, for example, like Ron's Coffee and um, Freddy Lawyer Dude. <laughs> um, it's more about like uh, the the really big hacks that have worldwide consequences, such as Five Nine, have tended to involve F Society, and the ones that led up to that, such as um, Steel Mountain. Um, I do ultimately think though that Darlene is um, just as big or larger of a contributor to society. And I think that's um, uh, the really good example of that is in her season two speeches that she gives to all of the new foot soldiers she's recruited. So she does not only make a good job of the hacking and stuff, but she's also an organizer, which Elliot hasn't really done. In fact, it was Darlene who put Elliot in touch with um, Transcendent Mobile to begin with. See, this is internalized sexism. That's what this is. <laughs> because um, she had been using Susan Jacobs' house as F Society headquarters. And of course, Elliot is in prison at this time. So she is truly the leader on the boots on the ground here. So that's how we know that the third is not Darlene. I don't think it can be. Also, I don't know how much to make of it. But, oh, wait, I'll get to this when we get to that scene. So... Elliot is aware of Susan Jacobs because of things he had read about the Washington Township case. He reveals to Darlene that she was also working for the Dark Army. With Susan Jacobs, one thing that I think is interesting about that is how, especially in the first and second seasons, one of the things that they explored um, was how Elliot, Darlene, and Angela all have different concepts of um, vengeance or for justice in the face of the Washington Township scandal and how it affected their families. Um, so far, they had all kind of been able to work together in spite of those differences. But in this case, Darlene's more um, direct and radical approach of actually killing one of their lawyers has um, it causes problems for Elliot's plan. So now, even though they have similar objectives, their different um, approach to completing them actually makes it more difficult for the other people. This is when Elliot shares with her that in his next hack and probably biggest and greatest hack, he's going after White Rose. Darlene has hacked the program Signal to be able to share their locations. And I wondered if you might know if that's actually possible to do. What she seems to do is make um, like a custom build of Signal, which is just when you would take the Signal source code, which is freely available, and then make some changes to it and um, install it on a phone manually. Um, well, it is possible. I wouldn't even really consider it hacking. It's more like you're just um, installing a customized app on the phone. And um, ordinarily, this wouldn't happen if you're using something like the um, Apple App Store or the Google Play Store, because um, 
then the apps go through a review process. It's generally um, verified that the app that you're using was built from the source code that they make available, if they do. Um, and the only way that they're able to install this customized version of Signal is by going through a kind of advanced process that makes sure that you're waiving those security guarantees that going through the store would get you. So here we get to, I guess, the big shocking plot twist for this episode. So remember how we were all out of sorts about how Vera showed up, but then no one ever commented on it? Darlene calls back to a conversation they had a couple of months ago about when Vera showed up. Yeah, so for one, this gives us a new perspective on the Vera interaction, and it also helps us to anchor this in time, being a few months after the facts. No, we get a moment of surprise for Mr. Robot and for Elliot, neither of whom knew about this or seemed to have any awareness of this conversation. And so the suggestion here is that there is yet another identity that lives within Elliot. Which is a shocking revelation. Although I really liked how quickly Elliot went back to shit-talking and blaming Mr. Robot for this. <laughs> well, who else does he have to shit-talk and blame I for I guess it? that he, like us, had not really considered this possibility yet. I have to admit, I don't know how intrigued I am by this. It kind of seems like um, a twist for a twist's sake, which is something that they had also done um, in season three. I think that I had said that about Elliot's... Um, throwing himself out the window instead of being pushed. But I also still have kind of high hopes for it because um, Sam elaborated in an interview that it's something that has been present from the very beginning of the season. So it doesn't really feel like um, the SX Machina that we were talking about. It doesn't seem like something that just came out of nowhere. I think that if they manage to play everything correctly, it will actually um, change our perspective of the existing three seasons in a really cool way. And what he's also said is that, so it has been present from the beginning, just like you said, and that also it's meant to tie together everything that happens next. But I think the most intriguing thing he said is that this is an idea, and he is on Reddit, he listens to the podcasts, he follows Twitter, that no one has imagined yet. So I truly don't know what to make of it. It could really go anywhere. I also actually find his suggestion even more useful in like the negative sense, because I can just look through every suggestion somebody's made and know that that's not it. <laughs> exactly. So I've started mentally crossing things off. But I also look at the information that we do have. So when we learn this, that's young Elliot, right? The little boy. I think it is young Elliot, although they have a different doctor for him just about every time he appears. Right. So it's young Elliot and the mom, and they're sitting at a table in Tyrell's office with four chairs. Yeah, so, well, this is Tyrell's office. Um, it also is the scene that happens at the very beginning of the pilot when Elliot is talking about the top 1% of the top 1%. I think that um, Tyrell might have actually been in that scene, although you only get to see their silhouettes. But um, I mentioned that just to say that this scene has, um, sorry, that this setting has existed um, kind of in like this dreamscape that we're seeing right now as part of Elliot's imagination. And um, maybe um, producer Dave would be able to speak about this a bit more if I could call on you. But it seems like the shots that they have of Elliot's imaginary mother use the same camera that they had um, for Elliot in season one, which we noticed was different in this uh, the setting. I didn't really notice the, uh, the camera work being very different about Elliot's mother, but I did notice that's not... Uh, it's not his office. That's a boardroom in the E-Corp building that they're in. Oh, yeah. But I mean, it's where they met Tyrell to be good. Yeah, yeah. When he offered him the job. I think that's what we meant. 
Yeah, because his office was uh, like the corner one, I believe. Yeah. So good catch there. Yeah, I didn't notice anything about the camera work being similar to season one. Maybe. I just noticed a lot of the camera work now is very um, Stanley Kubrick. Very Stanley Kubrick inspired this season. Oh, and, and did you also feel the way about Homecoming? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, because I noticed a lot of overlap between those two. I have one more thought just about um, the the last scene. So I'm not sure if we should be considering young Elliot and Magda, that's Elliot's mom, as alters as well. It's hard to tell because I think that um, he has seen Magda and young Elliot before. For example, um, when he was dying at the end of the season premiere, he's also seen his mom in a few situations, like when he was um, calling upon some aggression to um, be rude to the person in Steel Mountain. I don't remember what Um, that guy's name was. But um, a core difference is that, like, Mr. Robot is actually incorporated into his reality, where the mother and uh, young Elliot tend to be considered hallucinations even by him. Um, Which I think is actually the difference between a hallucination and a delirium, because it's more like Mr. Robot is indistinguishable from reality for Elliot, but he can still tell his um, mom and young self apart. The only other clue I extracted from it is that this other presence is someone who uses he, him pronouns because the mom says something like he's not here yet or he's not ready. Yeah. So we do have a lot of information that should help the narrow, narrow it down um, as to who this is. Because we know they're male. We know that they've been there from the beginning of the season. And we know that everything should kind of um, fall into place once we know who it is. But in spite of that, I still have no idea. So... I'm I'm really curious where they're going to take it. I feel like there is some disappointment out there that it's not Tyrell. I think that was a long-standing theory that has circulated over the internet. Um, but I I don't know who it is, and I think we're going to spend probably the rest of the season accumulating those little data points to help us figure it out. I don't think it ever could have been Tyrell. I thought that like they had some kind of weird supernatural relationship, but obviously, um, he's been. Um, like dating Joanna and he speaks Danish and other things like that that kind of make him seem separate to me. Although one thing that does tie them together is that um, there is the three days that were missing after um, the 5-9 hack, which is something that I think they'll probably elaborate on and we'll find out what Elliot was doing at that time um, acting as somebody else. And that'll be great, I think, to finally have that information because so much happens And that's right before that scene where they're talking about you only see what's in front of you. You're not seeing what's above you, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's one of those scenes that I had kind of um, compared to the Angela Red Room scene as being very Twin Peaks and surreal. And um, sort of like the drug withdrawal scene where Elliot has all kinds of um, hallucinations about like uh, find your monster and turn the key and things like that. I had always kind of discounted those as just being surrealism and being just um, like art for art's sake. But I sort of wonder if this revelation will kind of um, place all of those things within a more realistic context. And we'll see that maybe they actually did mean something that just wasn't obvious to us yet. So I think this felt a bit to me like a transitional episode where, and obviously compared to the first episode which was very action-packed and dramatic. You know, this seems like it's setting the stage for what's to come. So it feels like not a lot happens, but also like a lot has happened. Yeah. It almost felt a bit like the um, 
the scene that unpacked um, Trenton and Mobley's death that was spent with uh, Trenton's brother Muhammad for the most part, where they go to different settings and they kind of unpack their feelings. And it's mostly character developments. And um, ultimately, we do have like a pretty big plot twist, which I like because normally those are reserved for later in the season. But that just um, gives me the impression that they're going to have even more of those uh, all throughout these episodes. We want to thank you so much for listening to our show. You can follow us on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Rewatch. Thank you for participating in conversations and in our giveaways. And thanks to those folks who answered our key questions from last week about macaroni and gravy and also about what that actor was saying. And what we learned was Samoan. Thank you so much. We're really grateful for your listenership. We recorded this episode over White Rose's internet today, and uh, we'll be back with you next week. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. Bonsoir.